everybody to the GDV Podcast. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg, and my co-host is... I'm Scott Woodard. And this time around, we're doing something that we kind of think is a little bit even more special than usual, and that's because it's actually uh, what brought us together in the first place, really, when you think about it. Really? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. We're devoting this episode to probably the biggest event that's happening in pop culture this month. It is the 50th anniversary... Of Lawrence of, of Arabia. Of Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> exactly. I think it is. Coming up, we'll be discussing Omar Sharif, <laughs> Peter O'Toole, some of the more interesting things about their careers that you might not know, and the many versions of the film available on DVD and online. Widescreen, pan and scan, what's our choice? Find out next. <laughs> no, that's no. not what we're talking about. No. It's 50 years of Doctor Who. Woohoo! What else would we be talking about? Pretty much nothing other than Lawrence of Arabia. Now, the coolest thing is that this was an obvious choice. From the moment we began doing this podcast together back in May of 2013, we knew that eventually we would want to do something specific about Doctor Who and its 50th anniversary. It's just extraordinary. A franchise that's lasted 50 years. Uh, because uh, it did. It is the thing that, that introduced uh, us to each other, that uh, brought us together, that both of us have spent so much of our, not just personal, but professional lives uh, working in in one way or another, mm-hmm. uh, and just enjoying is one of the greatest things. Uh, I think, was it Russell T. Davis who said it's just the greatest idea ever invented in the history of the world, <laughs> or something like that, words to that effect. Yeah, I mean, there's, there aren't too many things out there that can completely change someone's life. Uh, other than, I mean, well, I mean, there's obviously there are spiritual pursuits and things like that, but uh, when in regards to pop culture, I mean, certainly Doctor Who is is left an indelible mark in our lives and many, many other people's lives as well. Absolutely, and we'll, we'll obviously be talking about that. We'll be talking about the effect that uh, we think it's had on its fandom and. The extraordinary history that it that it has stretching all the way back to November twenty third, nineteen sixty three, when it first began, and interestingly, as we were preparing to record this, we are obviously well. We're recording this right now, uh, just a week or so away from the actual debut of the fiftieth anniversary special, the Day of the Doctor, which will also mark one of another series of milestones that has been occurring with this show. It will be a global simulcast that will be reaching dozens upon dozens of countries around the world at the same time in the most incredible coordination of fans watching a single event of this sort that I can remember happening. And I can't remember the last time something like that was organized. No, not at all, especially in theaters, in 3D. In theaters in 3D, uh, on television, of course, here in the United States, where we both are, will be on BBC America. They will actually be running it on BBC America, from what I understand, at a much earlier time than they normally do because they're actually going to air it at the same time when they normally do it in the evening hours. They're going to be doing it in the afternoon to coordinate with the UK, with the UK time. So it's it's an amazing situation. And in the last few years, we've seen Doctor Who go from extremely niche kind of idea in the United States is something that has gone about as mainstream as any science fiction or genre show can possibly go, appearing on the covers of Entertainment Weekly and TV Guide, uh, toys and merchandise turning up in every local toy store and at Halloween stores this past Halloween. It's everywhere now in a way that no American fan could possibly have imagined. 
and it's a testament to what an incredible effect it's had, like you just mentioned uh, earlier, about how much of an impact it can have on an individual and on an entire group. Yeah. And it also is amazing. I mean, for someone, well, well, for people like us who've been with the show for so very long, and I, and I, you know, we'll get to this at some point, but, you know, I've been watching it for considerably longer than you have. That's um, right. For, you know, for many, many more years. It's been a bit jarring. And I mean, it's, it's almost been difficult to adapt to that kind of pop culture explosion. Oh, definitely. To, it's sort of like the, it's the old joke about the, the, the fans that, let go of a band when it's no longer cool because everybody's discovered them. It's that, it, there's an element of that to it where it's like, wait a minute, Doctor Who's not ours anymore. It's the world's. But then there's also something wonderful about that at the same time. But it's hard to adjust to people knowing what a TARDIS is. There's so many more people that know this stuff now. It, it used to just be ours. but I know, I know. And, it, and sometimes, you know, sometimes as childish as it may seem, there are moments where I really will almost regret. I mean, I have, it's not regret, but I resent it. <laughs> I, it's, 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 just... we've gotten to the negative so quickly. <laughs> no, and I, I, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that it's a, it's a terrible thing and I hate everybody who's, in, who's loving Doctor Who now, but you know, you, you, we were the champions. We were the torchbearers for the longest time. If, sure. if on those very rare occasions when somebody would walk up to you and say, what's that t-shirt that you're wearing? Or what's that <laughs> book that you're reading? And you could sort of tell them this great story about something that you were so passionate Are you about. stuffing that guy into that blue porta potty <laughs> and tell him that you're going to show him the universe? That's nothing. Doesn't matter. Just keep moving. And, you know, and back then they would all make fun of us because it was that cheesy shot on video show that they watched oh, on PBS. Oh, sure. Absolutely. But we defended it. We, we defended, defended it to the last. <laughs> defended it through the wilderness years. Well, we'll get to that, too. And, yeah. and the other thing is that as we um, prepared to record this episode, as I was saying earlier, knowing that we were going to do this, couldn't have imagined all the different things that were going to roll out in just the last couple months that all feel like incredible gifts to anyone that is a fan of Doctor Who in this 50th anniversary year. For a while during this year, it felt like things were kind of thin, and it was all like a build-up to the fall, and then as we hit the fall, unbelievable things began happening. We did an episode on the missing episodes that were recovered recently, mm -hmm. well, recovered a while back and released on iTunes so far, and soon to be on DVD, uh, two Patrick Troughton stories. And then, just a day or so ago, we got the prequel uh, mini-sode or mini-episode. God, I hate all these coined words. <laughs> mini-episode that is a prequel, not a prequel, but a prelude of sorts to the Day of the Doctor 50th anniversary special titled The Night of the Doctor. And in what has got to be one of the most beautiful gifts that has been given to fandom over the years, mm -hmm. it featured the return of Paul McGann, the eighth Doctor, who only ever appeared once on screen in the 1996 TV movie, but has gone on to become an extremely successful incarnation through countless big Finnish audio dramas, uh, has returned and in the Night of the Doctor. And by the way, spoilers galore, so if you haven't seen <laughs> any of this stuff... Pause now and go watch. It's only in six watch. and a half minutes or whatever. We'll put a link on this show because if you haven't seen it yet, something's horribly wrong. So, <laughs> But in the Night of the Doctor, we finally get to witness the final moments of Paul McGann's Eighth Doctor, his regeneration with an extraordinary almost seven-minute story that in some cases is better than some entire episodes, uh, features the return of the Sisterhood of Karn from the classic 1970s Tom Say Baker Morbius. <laughs> and, uh, and then a little surprise at the end because you'd assume that McGann regenerates into Christopher Eccleston, but ah, we have this mysterious John Hurt incarnation of the Doctor who will be turning up. Yeah. And that's the one that turns up here. The War Doctor. Yeah, he re regenerate, regenerates into Kane. Into Kane, that's right. <laughs> you know, the, know where the, that's going. Yeah, we, <laughs> it doesn't end well. <laughs> um, and that's what then he regenerates from after the alien comes out of his chest. <laughs> he regenerates into Christopher Eccleston the end. Beans on toast. Beans on toast. No, and of course there's that, you know, the great gag, which I, I'm i sure was intentional about that, you know, will it hurt? Will it <laughs> John hurt? Uh, oh, it's John. Oh, it's John Good. hurt. But yeah, just a, and, and not only that, but it's one of the, the great missing pieces that everybody always wanted to see. Yeah. It was 
McGann's final moments. And of course, it's different than we expected because it's tied into this whole new mystery that the 50th will revolve around this incarnation we never knew existed, but here it is, and he and they brought him back. Um, beautiful costume that was sort of an evolution of the costume from the TV movie, but realized in a slightly different way and yet seemed completely right. And in just a few brief minutes, he instantly re-inhabits the role like he never left. Yeah, it's it's just such a wonderful uh, early anniversary gift for for all of us. And like you said, it's a great anniversary gift for those of us who stuck with it during the, those wilderness years when the show wasn't on the air and when Big Finish was producing the, the Paul McGann stories. Because in a weird way, uh, it was almost a little thank you to us. It was it was basically saying, yeah, you guys stuck with it way, way before Russell Davies actually ever brought the show to the air. And here's the thing that you really have been wanting to see for all these years. And and he actually name checks all of the, or at least uh, I believe almost all, if not all, of the Big Finish audio companions that he's had. In his final moments before he drinks the elixir and regenerates, he names his companions from the eighth doctor audio so this effectively to the extent that people are going to argue about canon and all that stuff uh well go go fight that out if you want (laughs) as far as i'm concerned this counts it was on screen it's a prelude to the 50th it counts and therefore he named everybody that stuff counts then too and that's nice i totally agree the book fans are not that happy but yeah the book fans aren't happy he would have been there for another 15 minutes (laughs) Yeah, did you see that meme that's been going around where it lists all the companions? It's, <laughs> yes. It's pretty yeah. cute. But, yeah, I mean, you kind of have to draw the line somewhere, and I think this was a pretty realistic way of doing it and acknowledging the Big Finish audios and effectively saying the Big Finish audios are canon. Yeah, and it, to get back to something else you are saying, and this is we've done this before in some episodes, but I'll hit one of my pet peeves with the way some conversations go on the Internet or on certain forums out there. Um which is that people – one of the things I've never quite understood with some fans, this is about Doctor Who. It's about enjoying all aspects of the show and the history, and having something like this is incredible. And yet there will always be people who will argue, well, oh, this is – another term that's come up recently that I really have grown to hate is the, is the phrase fan service. Oh, yeah. I, that seems to have started to be used constantly now. Oh, that was fan service, which just seems to be another lazy way of denigrating something. <laughs> no good reason. It's like, well, does it still tell a good, coherent story for everybody? So then what difference does it make if it also pleases fans? Why is pleasing fans always a negative? And then people, there were people I saw that said, oh, they're turning to Paul McGann. That's nice and all, but that just seems like a really fanish thing to do. It's like, well, okay, in that case... In 2005, bringing back the Doctor, the police box, eventually Sarah Jane, K-9, the Master, the Daleks, the Cyber, and the other. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fan service there that turned into a global success story that has revitalized Doctor Who for the next 50 years. I mean, right. everything about bringing back a show and embracing its history is inherently on some level, quote-unquote, fan service. That does not matter. It doesn't matter that they brought back the same actor who played the Eighth Doctor once on television. What matters is that for a lot of new viewers who didn't know him at all, he was just the Doctor. Mm -hmm. And he's one they hadn't seen before. And if they want to, they can find out more about him now. It in no way made that any less compelling. In fact, I'd argue that for people that didn't know him, it was probably more exciting. Sure, yeah. They were meeting a new guy. For us, it was like, wow, Paul McGann's back. This is like a dream come true. For them, it's like, my God, there was another one, and and it happens there, and now they can go discover all these things. So I, I can't stand that whole attitude of, oh, they can't bring that back. That would be too uh, continuity heavy. No, all you have to do is write a good story <laughs> and and make it good for both new and old fans alike. And this was a, a beautiful thing on all those levels. Yeah, and I expect you're going to see an upsurge in the sales of the TV movie, uh, DVD. <laughs> would, and I you're also, so. and it's funny too because, and I don't blame them, but Big Finish has really embraced this thing uh, wholeheartedly. They've got discounts now on on Paul McGann episodes, and they're uh, promoting awesome. it up all over the place. So, sure. hey, you know, more power to them. I hope more people will investigate the, the the Big Finish audios. There's a lot of material there that people should be listening to. I, I remember 
I mean, having really liked the TV, I mean, yes, like a lot of things, you look back and you go, here's a flaw, here's a flaw. But at the time, that was also, that was our shot back then was the show potentially mm-hmm. coming back. And no matter what else anyone ever says about the TV movie, I've rarely found anybody who finds any fault with him. No. He was still one of the, the greatest things about it is that that part, they get absolutely right. No matter what else you say about it, Paul McGann was a perfect choice. I got myself going about it and was enthusiastic about doing it by the time I signed to do it. Very, very good as the doctor. He engaged people immediately. G2B. I remember when Big Finish first began doing the audio dramas and thinking this may be all we ever get for the rest of our lives and how wonderful it was to be able to hear them again and to have everybody back again. And remember, well, of course, you remember one of the things also is that they had uh, Peter Davison, Colin Baker, and Sylvester McCoy initially, but they did not have Paul McGann. Nope. And we all and, wanted him. And we all wanted him because essentially the other three were wonderful, but it was like, the novels where you would get a past doctor adventure paul mcgann would be continuing the show because he was for all intents and purposes the current incarnation and then when they first brought him back starting with storm warning i can remember where and when i was and sitting and listening to storm warning for the first time thinking my god the eighth doctor is back yeah this show is going on and this felt a little like that again with getting to see him on screen again, another thing you never thought would happen. Yeah, I mean, we had you know we had some uh, uh, novels. The, there were a few novels, right? Because huh? they did, did some of the uh, the Virgin stuff. They had a few of those. Was well, it I mean, Dying Days and uh... Dying Days was the last of the Virgin New Adventure novels in the 1990s. And I guess it, it's hard to decide exactly how to approach some of this stuff. We're doing this about celebrating Doctor Who, and our podcast is about so much related to pop culture, pop culture all over the place, but. Um, it's a little concerning when you think about, oh, well, should we be explaining all of this stuff? Yeah. We'd, we'd be here forever if we just talk about how this works. Like, you see, Doctor Who began it. But I guess just briefly for anybody that's that's lost it all on this is that when the, the series ended its run in 1989 after running consistently for 26 years starting in 63, its presence in book form had primarily been in the classic Target novelizations, which pretty much just adapted the show individual stories from the show and then it launched a original fiction line that continued through two companies virgin and then the bbc itself and bbc books and that was part of what we call the wilderness years of course and everybody who listens who knows that i'm just wasting time but knows that that's that torch-bearing period you're talking about where doctor who basically left the screen but proliferated into all other media and first into literary form primarily, and then on into the big Finnish audios as well. But Paul McGann's Doctor first appeared in a new novel in the final Virgin New Adventures book, The Dying Days, and then continued on through many, many books in the BBC Books line. Oh, yeah. Starting with Terence Dix's the Eighth, The Eight Doctors, which is not one that necessarily tops a lot of lists, but can also be fun if you, you know, you yeah. approach it. It's I, pretty collectible at the very yes. least. Yeah, I and, have a copy and, right here. <laughs> and his uh, and the Eighth Doctor saga went through tons of books, all the way to a version of the Time War, not too dissimilar from the way it was shown in the TV show. But because of the way rights issues and other things are, the books version of a Time War between Gallifrey and its unseen enemy could not be construed as the same as the one that's now referred to on television. Right. But if you go back and look at the books, you could certainly see a lot of things. He also appeared in the comic strip that has appeared in Doctor Who magazine for many years. He was certainly in that for a long time. And then, of course, the big finished audience. But why am I even telling you this? Because you wrote an Eighth Doctor story. Wait, me? Yes, I you did. did. You contributed to the Eighth <laughs> Doctor saga in what? Uh, what, the story? Um, yes. Yeah, Absolution. Which, uh, that was the last Big Finish audio I ever wrote for the company. <laughs> Please write to Big Finish and tell them <laughs> to hire Scott Woodard back. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I pissed anyone off there. It's just, uh, you know, things change. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so I have solution. Um, that was, uh, the last one that I did. And, um, it was, it was a great honor to be able to write for Paul. Um, I had already done, you know, Colin Baker. I had written for the, the Sixth Doctor with the Juggernauts. That was mm-hmm. the first one I ever got. And, uh, then I kind of meandered a little bit because then I did, uh, A Dark Shadows and I did, uh, The Eye Davros Guilt. But then it went into, uh, getting the opportunity to write for Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Absolution was a, one of those other ones too, where I mean, if, this is a story for another time. I'll tell you the whole thing about how I got in, you know, got the juggernauts and how I got in the big finish in the, in the first place. But sure. Absolution was pretty shocking because when I was told what needed to be in that story, uh, it was a little overwhelming. And that now, shopping list kind of thing. It huh? was a little bit of the shopping list thing, except for in this case, it was all, all I needed was it had to be, you know, Paul McGann. It had to have Charlie, India Fisher, and it had to have Kara's. Mm-hmm. Now that was my laundry list, but and now do I do I spoil anything? <laughs> <laughs> um, because well, it is a gonna... Paul McGann story. So let me just say that uh, there was something significant that had to happen to the character of Kara's. Uh, right, right. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, okay. I highly encourage you to listen to it, but please listen to the other stories featuring Kara's before you listen to mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he's one of the ones that's mentioned in yeah, the Doctor. He, as a so. matter of fact, he lists, he says, Charlie and Kara's. He mentions both of the characters that I, I got to work with. And, of course, I wrote a very significant story for Kara's. So by doing that, I now feel like I've actually written canon Doctor Who. And well, you always have. I always, it's, well, it's, yeah. I mean, a lot of people always say the big finish stuff has, is in its own way canon. But then, of course, the other thing, too, and I, I had mentioned this on Facebook earlier today. Um, I think ever since Russell T. Davis told me flat out that he had used the mechanical hand from my Davros story, um, uh, The Juggernauts, uh, and used it in his story. Uh, mm-hmm. That was what Journey's End, right? Um, or um, the Stolen Earth and Stolen Journey's, Earth and Journey's End. End. Yeah. Uh, he told me to my face at Comic Con that he wanted to maintain that continuity. So by contributing that, I felt that I was already effectively writing for a real Doctor Who, quote sure. unquote. But now this Absolution thing, uh, with the mention of the characters that I worked with, um, really, really solidifies it. And I was a little. You know, the Brits would say chuffed. I was pretty, <laughs> pretty excited to hear that. And, uh, I'm, yeah. st- I'm still kind of beaming about it. Oh, sure. Well, and you should. And, and the cool thing though is what you're saying also points out one of the other significant things here, which, which is what you said at the top of everything. How much something like this has affected our lives. Yeah. In a, in a way that few, um, media projects possibly can i mean like anything else when you're a fan of something you grow like i grew up a massive star trek and star wars fan all these kind of things i mean it is something that you if you're really uh, immersed in it or obsessive about it it can become a huge part of your life you go to conventions you become immersed in a fandom it changes things for you socially um you meet people uh, all these different kind of things Doctor Who is is one of those things that occupies, I think, such a specific place in the sense that it has brought together people, obviously we're talking about 50 years now, it has brought together people from around the world as technology has caught up and enabled people to communicate, not just across the country, but around the planet. It the That fandom has interconnected and associated in ways that it could never have done before through uh, online forums and conventions and all these other things that go on and all the different merchandise that exists, whether it's following Doctor Who in print or on audio and now again with television. It's an extraordinary thing, and there's so many of us that shaped our professional lives in directions deliberately intended to make sure that Doctor Who was a part of that. Mm-hmm. And you're one of those people, and you actually got to write what, as far as I'm concerned, for all intents and purposes, was Doctor Who. You wrote pieces of the essential story of Doctor Who. And one of the things you mentioned also, and I'll just take the opportunity to hype you, which is that in I, Devereux's Guilt, for instance, you got to write something that I think most fans would find an extraordinary opportunity. You wrote the direct prequel to Genesis of the Daleks. Yep. 
and something that not only extended the mythology of the Daleks, but did so with some very significant bits of trivia that if someone is that steeped in it and wants to know, it's your story that adds a few extra wrinkles to that origin of the Doctor's greatest archenemies. Mm-hmm. That is just, well, again, people should go and seek that out if they hadn't before. And it's, it's the, if I remember, it's the fourth part of a four part miniseries about Davros's life. Correct, yeah. But yours occupies the place at the end that directly connects it to Genesis. Yeah. And as a result, it's not just you writing a story, uh, which is amazing in and of itself, but one that has great significance in the canon and mythology of the show. But of course, it's all just fan service. But yeah, it's all fan service. <laughs> it's it's awful. It's just I don't know why you did that. What was I thinking? I don't know. No, I mean, it, that, yeah, it was a uh, you know that's uh, obviously that's one of the great things that about the company about Big Finish and it's uh, in general is just the fact that they allowed their writers to really experiment and try new new and exciting things and really explore the vastness of this Doctor Who universe. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, more more so than the show ever did. Uh, mm-hmm. I think actually in in a significant number of ways because you're not restricted by a budget. Um, right. You know, it was that was kind of one of the things going back to Absolution, which is a good you know I can might as well keep talking about it. It's Paul McGann. Um, <laughs> the nice thing about that one is if you ever read the the liner notes in the CD by the director, uh, he was absolutely terrified when he first got my script because he. I, I included a lot of really crazy stuff in there. There's demons flying in the sky. There's citadels that are trapped in time bubbles. There's this gigantic monster that's approaching the city. You know, all this incredible stuff, huge in scope. There's no way that it could have been real, realized in old Doctor Who. Nowadays, you could probably get away with it. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. But um, we could do it because it was just audio. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was, I think the results uh, speak for themselves. Um, although I'm going to. I'm going to reveal some great secret to you all. Yes. I've never listened to it. <laughs> oh, really? I don't think I knew that. Okay. Um, I Wait, have a, if you, you listened to the other two? I've listened to, yeah, I listened to Idevros Guilt and I obviously listened to the Juggernauts. I listened to the Juggernauts because it was the first one I had ever written and I really uh-huh. wanted to hear it. You know, that was very important to me. I listened to Idevros Guilt because I had such a great time writing that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really wanted to hear how it all came together. And I did not listen to Absolution because, you know, we are our, we are our worst critics. We, okay. you know, any creative person, we're our worst critics. You know, if you work on a book, you're not going to sit down and read that book again. You know, you write nope. that story and you pass yeah. it off and it's done. I and have to admit that's true. At least I feel that way too. I, I, I sometimes I can't even bear to look at something. I, I yeah. And I can't, yeah. I, I, as even, a, even though I enjoyed listening to those other audios, I was so critical of them. Wow. Because I would hear a word or a turn of a phrase or something and it would just make my skin crawl because I knew that nine times out of ten, that was my fault. Oh. Uh, probably overly critical. Oh, absolutely. I I have no, I'm not denying that at all. Uh, but for Absolution, because it was such a significant story, because Mm -hmm. it involves something, you know, that effectively changes the entire storyline for a particular character, Uh um, I was nervous to listen to it, and I still have not listened to it. Someday, maybe I'll do it. Well, now that Paul came back, and Paul, as like he's my best friend now. <laughs> you know, the other day he was saying, "Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, Jay, gonna be on. in the show What's again." Up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, I have, um, some, I have some great Paul McGann stories, but maybe that's yeah. for another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but now that he's back, maybe you you might just have to, you know. Bite the bullet there and listen to your own I, I Paul McGannister. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even listened to my Dark Shadows. I wrote, All right, I wrote that okay. Um, well, that's for another episode. That's when another we cover episode. Dark Shadows. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, you have to listen to that. Yeah, and of course, I'm all excited because I have another audio coming out next year, and there's no way I'll listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can look forward to not hearing that one. Yeah, I always I, I promote the heck out of it, and it, you know what. What it comes down to is that when I go to a convention, when I'm at Gallifrey or, or wherever, and I have someone walk up to me and say, I loved the Juggernauts, or just just uh, a week ago when I was at Oricon here in, in Oregon, 
uh, in Portland, I had somebody walk up to me and say that they loved Absolution, that it was one of their all-time favorite Big Finish mm-hmm. audios, except mm-hmm. for something in there that I haven't spoiled. <laughs> and they were mad at me about it, but it was like, you know, a tongue-in-cheek kind of anger. Yeah, at this and, point, I can't imagine that anybody listening to this can't figure out exactly <laughs> what you're talking about now. I think I think it's all but spoiled. So, oh, but okay. I mean, they'll listen to it anyway. Yeah, go listen to it. But anyway, so so I digress. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. Not only do we grow up fans and you were watching for a long time, I don't know if we wanted to do the thing where we do our, our personal stories about how we... Yeah, uh, I mean, we might we as well. But I mean, um, cool. but one thing you did mention is like you're right. You actually have written uh, Doctor Who, and although most of my work professionally related to Doctor Who has tended toward nonfiction and now publishing, uh, whether it's the Outside In book, which is the collection of reviews of classic Doctor Who, and then we're following it up. This is obviously just a commercial, but then. <laughs> The following the next, is a paid promotion. Yeah, <laughs> no, the next not. book uh, will cover the whole new series up to the end of this year. So we're waiting for whatever the 50th anniversary stuff was for Outside In Volume Two, yeah, which and, is, and I, I think I'm in that. You are in that, <laughs> absolutely in that. Um, many people are because that was that was one of the hooks of the Outside In series. It's kind of extraordinary. There are lots of review books out there, but the the outside in books have a different writer for every single story. And in the case of the classic series, that was 160 stories, 160 writers. And that all comes down to editor Robert Smith. Robert Smith, question mark. Yay. Um, who put all that together. But so. But you know what? Of- no, that's a great tie-in. I mean, obviously, I'll let you finish your thought here. But the, those books are a wonderful tie-in with what our, the sort of the main focus of our show here is. All about fandom. Yes. How important well, it is. No, absolutely. And one of the things was that that I was genuine. I mean, this is going to sound false because it sounds like I'm hyping the thing. But one of the reasons I was so genuinely thrilled, I would have, I keep saying I would buy the book if I hadn't published it. I mean, that it's the book. It's one of the books I would have wanted to own. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we were putting it together, the whole idea was it was basically like capturing a snapshot of fandom across all boundaries, across gender, race, background, age, when you first got into the show, what your favorites were. It's an extraordinary scope that speaks to how Doctor Who has lasted for 50 years and is surely going to continue because it has such an incredible range. And it's a show that's one of the most amazing formats of any show ever, a show that can virtually transform almost as completely as its lead character can transform and find itself in different genres and structures of storytelling and still basically remain Doctor Who. And that's absolutely amazing. It's all about essentially the joy of adventure and exploration and the excitement of all these things mixed together, science fiction, horror, and fantasy, and yet it changes constantly. And every time it does, it draws in another new group, Many of the people that were following it continue to follow it. It's an incredible thing. There's, I can't think of any other show or any other brand out there that has that kind of flexibility. I mean, I was just having a conversation with a coworker just tonight, and uh, he's not a big Doctor Who fan. He's seen a, you know, he's seen some of the new stuff, but we were discussing the scope of the show. And mm-hmm. and he was wondering. He he said some comment to me or asked a question to me, wondering about how limiting Doctor Who is. And I had to, of course, say, you can do anything in this show. Any, yeah. Anything. And, you know, he was, I think it's funny because he was approaching it from a more science fiction point of view. And right. I had to keep reining it in and saying, well, it's not science fiction. It's science fantasy. And right. that right. allows you to, to, you know, go into the land of fiction, you know, or, right. or um, you know, uh, fight. You know, drash eggs inside of, uh, you know, miniscopes and all this kind of stuff that is not directly sci-fi. And any attempts, you know, there certainly have been attempts to rein it in and make it more sci-fi. But ultimately, uh-huh. at the end of the day, it's a wizard with a magic box and a magic wand. And that's it. Right. 
Right. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because the magic wand thing, he's had the sonic screwdriver over the years, but it's become such an essential part of the series, especially since it returned, that it really does nail down that um, that comparison in a way that maybe it wasn't always the case. I mean, you're right in that he's always basically been a wizard character. Mm-hmm. Certainly Hartnell's incarnation right at the very beginning is like a Merlin-type figure anyway. And Merlin has even been directly referenced. And, of course, if anybody knows the, the seventh Doctor story, Battlefield, we know he is going to be Merlin at some yeah. point. <laughs> um, but now with, this, with him waving the sonic screwdriver around all the time, in the new series, it definitely has that. And yeah, I would I would defend that to anybody, and that's another one of the raging debates that will go on. And I'm sure there are many Doctor Who fans who disagree with this, but I absolutely agree. It's science fantasy. It, it in no way adheres. And then then that's the thing that <laughs> there's another right thing, another another pet peeve thing, which is you know you're talking about a show with a guy who is an alien from a race that came up with boxes that are that have infinite worlds within them that can travel any place in time and space. And then you'll have people that will argue the minutiae of a particular episode and say, but they can't do that because physics dictates that that planet <laughs> can't move. Like I remember, like I love the story Journey's End, and, and, and I think one of the most beautiful, poetic, and incredibly uplifting and triumphant moments in the new series is when the Doctor and all of the friends that he's collected over the years, some old, some new, all gather around the console and lead the Earth back home. That's at the end of series four of the new series. I've got goosebumps. Yeah, and the TARDIS drags the Earth back home to an extraordinary uh, score by Murray Gold. And there are people that just would not stop complaining about the fact that the Earth moving at that speed would have its atmosphere ripped from it, <laughs> that everybody on the surface wouldn't just be jostled around as we see, but would be pummeled to death. And I'm thinking, you're buying the part about the TARDIS, <laughs> but you're mad that the physics of the Earth is not working properly. I'm sorry, but you just don't get to do that. Yeah. It just does not work that way. No. This is magic. This is fantasy. And if, you, if you're going to compartmentalize like that, you're going to have a bad time. It's just the way it is. Yeah, there's no no wonder it's a you know we've got an impossible plan and an impossible impossible girl and impossible <laughs> it's astronaut. It's all impossible. It's all impossible. The whole show's impossible. Come on. The only thing that's kind of impossible, really, at this point, is why the doctor would ever say anything's impossible anymore. <laughs> it's, because it's highly improbable. Is, yeah, everything's possible and probable at this point. Oh, look at that! Oh, that's probable. That's right. It is. <laughs> I don't think it has as much emotional impact. No, that's right. It doesn't. That's very probable. It's extremely probable. <laughs> That's never happened before. Now it's happened quite a few times, yeah, actually. No, a couple of times. Pretty typical to happen. <laughs> um, I'm going to focus back on myself really shamelessly for another second here because you were talking about the big finish stuff. I mentioned that a lot of what I've done professionally has been nonfiction. I have one, not, not to the extent that, that you have, but I have something that I'm also thrilled that in some small way, at least so far, I've also been able to contribute to the actual story of Doctor Who, which is that also Big Finish, though. So we both have the connection with Big Finish. For a while, Big Finish was also doing a book series uh, called Short Trips, which were collections of short stories. And one of the things that I I think is really kind of neat now that I look back on it, we're talking about the 50th anniversary, and one of the things we keep saying in this episode is how it's actually affected our lives. One of the ways the the Doctor changed my life was that I got to be in a book called How the Doctor Changed My Life. <laughs> and that was one of the short trips collections they put together where they ran a contest to find new writers. And they were going and and the, the cool thing was, was Simon Garrier, by the way, was the editor of that collection. So I gotta give a shout out to Simon who's awesome and also often turns up at conventions, does a lot of work uh related to the D V D range, uh, among many other things, and also a writer in his own right, author. Um they were looking for new writers for Big Finish, and the contest was to find one. And as it happened, they found 25. And they couldn't 
actually break it down to the one. They felt like they had found too many, and the the great stroke of luck for all of us who were involved in that is that rather than simply feature one winner in an upcoming book, which was their original plan, they decided to take the 25 that they really liked and give us our own book. And that book was How the Doctor Changed My Life. The entire concept of the contest was write a story that in some way communicates that theme. And the weirdest part was it was a story I had already written years earlier that didn't have the Doctor in it at all and did that. So I've done that one, which was a seventh Doctor story. And then right before the Short Trip series, uh, unfortunately, came to an end, I think I was one of the reasons it killed it. Maybe that's what happened. Oh, yeah. The last, I think it was the very last one they put out before they did their best stuff collection was called Indefinable Magic, and I got to do a Six Doctor Perry story with zombies in 1930s New Orleans, which I had great fun doing. And while it's certainly not, I would not even argue that anything like that is on the same level of canon or authenticity as even something like the audios you've done or the audios now in the way that they're associated with the TV show, I also feel that little glimmer of all of us have that thing of we just want to have something mm-hmm. that we've like somehow contributed to the vast story that sprawls over all these decades, and I'm glad to have done that too. Oh, so, yeah. so it's just it's that extra little thrill of knowing that not only have you enjoyed these adventures, you've been able to contribute to them in some way. And there aren't many properties where that can happen either. I mean, Star Trek also though has, has done that with collections and things like that, but apart from coming at it professionally uh, but again that's another thing think about the new series as well we mentioned russell t davis steve moffat is currently running the show writers on the series like paul cornell and rob shearman and uh, I'm, I'm missing tons of other people all of whom were fans before they were professionals or involved with doctor who professionally. gary russell gary russell i knew i knew i was going <laughs> to obviously yes gary russell who then, through a long and prolific career related to Doctor Who, was not only associated with the magazine, but producing the Big Finish audios, mm-hmm. became script editor uh, for Doctor Who and the Sarah Jane Adventures. There are people now associated with the show at the highest levels of its production who were people like us who grew up loving the show and mixed their professional lives with their passion for it and are now the ones that are shaping its future. And that is also a real rarity. You don't see that happen nearly to this extent. So you mentioned torchbearing. While fans were keeping Doctor Who alive at a time and it wasn't on the air, there are fans keeping Doctor Who alive right now on the air. They're the ones making the show. Yeah. Well, and you can't forget David Tennant and Peter Capaldi. Sure. (laughs) Both huge, long-time Doctor Who fans. Mm -hmm. And Matt Smith, who is not, but who... Who, you know, famously, when given material to review when taking on the role, instantly fell in love with Patrick Troughton's Doctor. And that just shows that in, in many ways, like he's a great example of uh, someone who represents the new series fan. He's someone who came to the show fresh, reached back to its past, and still found, yes, you can definitely find something in its history to appreciate and is not only playing the role, but really came to... Uh, love so much of its history and so you have people who came to it with all that knowledge and people who came to it without that. I mean arguably we look back at the whole history of the show and many people refer to the years that Philip, Philip Hinchcliffe was producing as some of the great classic storytelling in the history of the series and Hinchcliffe was someone who came to the show without a lot of preconception or particular personal interest in the show beyond being a working television producer and his goal was simply to make the best possible show he could. And his era is one of the, arguably one of the best eras the show ever had. Sure. So we've had quite a range. That's another thing, too. The show has been in the hands of people that care very deeply for it on a personal level. It has been in the hands of people who were purely there professionally but treated it exactly as it should be treated, you know, as, a, as the job they need to do and also as a show that can have all that potential for great storytelling, and it can work in all those different ways, all those different levels. Well, and it's also amazing, too, if you extend that into fandom, because as we more or less started the show off talking about uh, this, there there are the fans who have only seen the new series, 
Mm-hmm. And some of those fans will, I think, sadly, not revisit the old series. Uh, but that's fine. I mean, they're enjoying the show for what it is. And then, of course, there's other fans who have started and they've gone back and they've become huge fans of the entire series. Oh, you know, yeah. Uh, we have, uh, we've had, we've run into people at conventions who have flat out said, you know, I started with, uh, with David, you know, David Tennant, yeah, the 10th Doctor, right. but I love John Pertwee, you know, yeah. and it's just, it's just so warming to hear that kind of thing. And, and again, what other show could possibly do that? Yeah. And have so much to offer someone who discovers it for the first time. Oh, no, not now. Doctor, what is it? No, not now. I'm busy. Is it to do with the painting? No, no, this is different. I remember this. Almost remember. Oh, of course. This is where I come in. Geronimo! Doctor! Wait! G2V. I just recently attended the first ever Long Island Doctor Who convention. Uh, one of the other interesting things has been there have been conventions that have run for quite a while, whether it's Gallifrey One in L.A. or Chicago TARDIS, and conventions that have a long history and a community that is that crosses over to many of them. There are, of course, naturally a lot of other events in the U.K., and I'm not as intimately familiar with that, but I've never been able to attend any of them. But we're seeing a lot more events cropping up in the United States. Uh, and a lot of other shows is people in different regions are finding that they're so passionate about the show. They want a convention. They want a place to go where they can all get together, whether it's cosplaying or whether it's being on panels and discussing things about the show or viewing it or seeing doctors and actors and people involved in the show personally. Uh, and at Long Island Doctor Who, this is their very first one. It was a fantastic weekend. They had Sylvester McCoy, the seventh doctor there. And one of the things that was the most heartwarming to me was at one of several panels he did through the weekend, while suffering from a horrible cold, by the way, <laughs> a consummate showman, he was really sick. He, he didn't look like he was doing too well. <laughs> he was holding it together. But he, he worked the crowd with so much energy. And rather than simply sit there and have other people field questions – he also went out into the crowd and took questions from everybody. He, he wasn't trying to infect anybody either. So <laughs> he wasn't trying to spread anything. But he, was, but he was trying to give them the best show that he possibly could, even while he was you know, less than 100%, and it was amazing. And there was this little kid who had with him a fez. Now, for anybody that's a new series fan particularly, that should not be alarming at all or out of the ordinary because, of course, the fez has become – quite an apparently indispensable part of the show in the last few years uh, and turns up a lot. However, as some classic Doctor Who fans might know, the Fez was not uh, unique to the Matt Smith era because very briefly in Silver Nemesis, a seventh Doctor story, the seventh Doctor pops on a Fez for a few seconds while he's investigating the storage rooms at the palace and uh, looking through the Queen's collection of artifacts. And at one point, he's got a mop and a fez. And yep, that's right, Matt Smith did the thing with a mop and a fez, but Sylvester McCoy did the mop and the fez. And this little kid in the audience had a fez on, and when Sylvester McCoy came up to ask, what, you know, what's your question, the kid held up, he also had a mop with him, and he had, and oh, oh, so it's a Matt Smith reference? No, he had seen Silver Nemesis. And he brought the mop and fez along with him, and Sylvester McCoy interviewed the mop. Oh, that's, <laughs> was, that's just awesome. And, but the thing is, it's this little kid, and he has—he was just in awe of McCoy and the fact that he was meeting a doctor. I don't know if it, he would consider it his doctor. Maybe it is. But, yeah, there's absolutely no barrier there. I mean, like you said, there are people that aren't interested in going further back than the new show. And if they're happy with that, that's their way of being a fan. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that there aren't very young people. You should never make the assumption that some young person watching it is automatically going to be someone that doesn't investigate the history. There are plenty of little kids out there today whose doctor is uh, the seventh or the fifth or the fourth. It's, it's just absolutely all over the map. DVDs are probably a big part of that too. Oh sure, that, yeah. 
that pretty much the whole history of the show by the time we get to the end of this year, with a few exceptions and maybe a few more if we're lucky, mm-hmm. uh, is almost all in DVD at this point. So it's all accessible. Well, and as you know, we were talking about how there's just been this insane upsurge of attendance at uh, Gallifrey One of all these new fans who are you know they're walking around in their Matt Smith or David Tennant costumes and the you know people dressed as Amy and et cetera, et cetera. But think about it: when we were there and William Russell took the stage, and William Russell played Ian Chesterton, uh, it, the, one of the or yeah, one of the first companions on the series. Right there, there was it was standing room only in that room. Oh yeah, there was absolutely. absolute reverence for this this actor who you know started it. And, sure, and I think even the hardcore fans who will only watch the new series at least understood how important it was to be there for that. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say one of the first companions. One of the first things I think about too, and not that obviously, like so many things, I, I seem to say this on so many of our episodes. We could talk about this stuff for hours. I mean, with Doctor Who, obviously, <laughs> there's no end to this. No. Every single era, entire story, we could spend an episode on. You mentioned William Russell being one of the first companions is Ian, and it's interesting because the first thing that pops into my mind too is when you really think about it, when the show began, Ian's pretty much the lead. Yeah. He's really the lead, and the Doctor is the supporting character because you don't know who this old guy is, but he's creepy and crazy and dangerous. <laughs> and really, our heroes are Ian and Barbara. And and then, of course, you flash forward to 2005 and Rose, and the show comes back, and how do they do it? They introduce the Doctor through Rose, who, for all intents and purposes in that story, is, again, the lead. And the Doctor is this creepy, crazy, dangerous, mysterious character that you don't quite get a handle on. And it's interesting, really, when you think about it, that we become so enamored with him and it becomes so comfortable after a while in both incarnations of the show over the years. And it fluctuates back and forth. But at both major starting points, the Doctor is basically a mysterious supporting figure in his own series. It's through the lens of a human character that you get to know this crazy alien guy and mm-hmm. and it and it's not comfortable. He's not a typical hero. I mean, as, I know we really haven't spent a lot of time on this actually talking about the show and the character after a few years, but that's the thing. He's changed so many times, but while he's gone through phases where you can absolutely say he's a traditional heroic figure, where the character seems to sit most often, he's not He's a very complex character, far more than many other lead characters in any kind of franchise you could name. Even if you go to another show that's nearly reaching 50 years, it's imminent with something like Star Trek. And if you pick a character like Captain Kirk, for instance, he's, he's a well-rounded character with a lot of complexity to him, too. But he's essentially a hero. The Doctor is very different. He's, he's often anti-establishment often dangerous, not necessarily consciously, but often the case. I mean, one of the things in the new series is how often he's referred to as being the worst thing that's happening in any story. <laughs> you know, like entire planet's terrified of, oh, you showed up? Now everything's really going to be awful. Right. The, you know, and, and yet we're with him. And he's a very, he's, he's a spoiler kind of a character, not in the sense of spoilers like a story, but he's a character that comes in and destroys the status quo and it's an odd thing and it's interesting it says a lot also i mean i'm sure we've spent a lot of time on that it says a lot about uk pop culture and 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 culture and where things were in the 60s there and where they are every successive decade that they're one of their most successful fictional creations is a character that absolutely has a very different approach to heroism than the american concept of a hero I mean, you put Cap- what a lot of things like Captain Kirk would do is arguably one of the quintessential American science fiction heroes. And they're such different characters with such different approaches to how to solve problems. And the Doctor's an intellectual. So you often... It, what, what's it Craig Ferguson said? One of the best lines ever about the Doctor Who ever was Craig Ferguson said, and I can't think of the line now. No, I'm not sure. The, the, triumph, of, the triumph of intellect... Uh, or something over brute force and cynicism or something. I don't know. But it was something like that. But it's it's a strange character to build an entire show around and then to have him transform over and over again and still retain that core of always being a guy who's sort of the on the outside looking in, but 
maybe that's another reason why we all love the character so much. Yeah. I mean, it's somebody who can show you the universe and will not ever resort to overt violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not scary in that regard. But, you know, wasn't it an interview with Colin Baker where he had that great speech about that the doctor doesn't always do things that are pretty or how did he phrase it? But it was one of those things where he's like, but ultimately it's what he does is right. Right. Yeah. And sometimes right might not be the nicest path. Right. But ultimately it's the right thing to do. Um, Yeah. I mean, he's got that moral center, even though it's at times a little hazy. Yeah. And and, it's not necessarily human either. That's for sure. Oh, well, that's exactly what I was going to say, because another thing the show is often underlined is the fact that, let's not forget, he is an alien. Therefore, the very idea of the character is he is observing humanity. He's he's in love with humanity, which is why he keeps coming back to Earth, why he always has companions traveling with him. And there have been so many wonderful – and that's another thing. 50 years, every conceivable angle on this narrative has been explored by people like you doing the audios, by people in the novels – through stories, um, and there have been so many interesting and different and equally valid ways of looking at all the different aspects of the show, one of them being the idea of the Doctor always having these companions. Very often are pretty young girls, but not always. I mean, you know, it's, it's varied. He certainly had uh, boys and men traveling with him, too, older women traveling with him, too. So many of the peripheral stuff has tried to break that mold and show a variety of different things. He's had human beings traveling him with him that were from the past and from the future. He's had alien beings traveling with him, depending on what he said, (laughs) chameleon. Uh, And, but the dynamic there has been interesting because some stories have explored that. Why does he do that? Mm -hmm. He's lonely. He's, he needs to have help with the moral center Humanity is something he's fascinated by, and he uses this as an opportunity to see things through their eyes because he's so ancient that he no longer – there are so many different ways of interpreting it, and they're all interesting ways of interpreting that. And every new writer comes along and adds their little bit to this legend, basically. Uh, but it's one of the things that I mentioned with – whether it's Ian or Rose, too, is that the companion is – at its best, I would imagine, always an audience identification figure, or should be. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't always worked out that way. And then, of course, when you're really invested in the Doctor, the focus tends to shift, and you don't really care necessarily as much about the companion. There's still plenty of eras and stories in which your focus is on the Doctor and not necessarily who's traveling with him. But there are then those stories where it's very firmly the focus is placed on the companion, traveling with him and the idea that you're seeing the alien through human eyes and they both work it just depends on what era of the show you're looking at well i think we've done a really really nice celebration here of fandom and what a great uh, show doctor who is and what a wonderful influence it's been on all of us uh, around the world as you said at the top of the show both professionally and personally mm-hmm. um i think we've, and for both of us and too. yeah definitely yeah. for both of us and uh, and I'm really now we're of course we're really looking forward to the the actual 50th celebration which is coming up in the form of mm-hmm. Day of the Doctor. Uh, from from where we're at this point where we're recording, we're only eight days away or seven now actually because we're right, recording this right. quite late. And uh, and then we also have um, the Adventures in Time and Space which we'll need to talk oh, about. But absolutely. we're let's uh, we'll stop this one and look forward to a really nice follow up after after we both watch those um, because then we can absolutely celebrate the 50th anniversary of the show and uh, I'm sure we'll be gushing about all sorts of wonderful stuff then. Oh, and we'll take the opportunity then to go back to one of our other points and uh, just talk about our personal discoveries of the show. Yeah, because that'd be. Yeah, A lot of people, as we were saying earlier, a lot of people sort of discovered the show when it launched in 2005, and that's great, but uh, there might be some interest to hear how we got into it, and I'd look forward to talking about that a little bit. And, of course, one of the other things that we definitely want to do in the next episode is we will finally uh, draw the winner of our contest for Midnight Syndicate's Monsters Monsters of Legend CD. Uh, we had the contest at the end of last month at the, our final Halloween episode, which we certainly hope you all enjoyed. Uh, it was a lot of fun making that one. 
And we survived. <laughs> we did survive, obviously. <laughs> the zombies didn't get us. But, um, yeah, so we'll be drawing the, the winner and announcing the winner of that CD. And we will also have a brand new contest, another free item, no catches, free, free no traps. Uh, of, of And this one should be of great interest to Doctor Who fans. So you will definitely want to listen to that. So we will uh, catch up with you in just a few days after we both enjoy Day of the Doctor and also the Adventures in Time and Space and who and several other specials oh, that are going to be other things. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be a nightmare keeping up with everything. <laughs> it's all going to be happening at once. Yeah, but yeah, we'll we'll get to look at all of that and uh and happy 50th anniversary Doctor Who and to everybody and we'll talk more about it real soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Paul, it's lovely to see you here at Collectomania today. Of course, we've seen you already this week in the new mini-episode, The Night of the, the Doctor. What a word. Mini-sode. I'm going to say it today and never again. And thanks for listening to the G2V podcast, now part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and please rate us while you're there. Visit our website at g2vpodcast.com. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at g2vpodcast. And if you have any comments or questions, send them our way via contact at g2vpodcast.com. Our show music is by Brian Boyko and Frank Nora. <laughs> <laughs>